Lord Jesus, be magnified in this place. Be magnified in our fellowship. Be magnified in our worship. Be magnified in our singing. Be magnified in my preaching, in my teaching of your word. Lord Jesus, it's not about us. It's about you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are the great and mighty God, and you're worthy of all of our praise. So, Lord, anoint this time. Holy Spirit, come anoint the ministry that's fixing to take place in every single heart that's seated in this sanctuary. Church, just pray. Say, Lord, speak to me this morning. Speak to my heart. If you're watching online, pray that same prayer. Lord, speak to our hearts this morning. For we love you and praise you. And it's in the mighty, awesome, victorious, wonderful, eternal name. Your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. You may have a seat. Great to see everyone this morning. Let's uh, read God's word. Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. It says, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple building to him. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Father, thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, as we study it this morning, we pray, Lord, that you be magnified, that you leave, we leave here just overflowing in hope, in joy, in victory, and God, touch our hearts. Give us the joy of the Lord, knowing that we're in a right relationship with you. And one day, our faith journey is going to end because we're going to see you face to face. First, in Jesus' awesome name, I pray. Amen. Amen. So this morning, we're looking at a very cool subject. Some people call this eschatology. It's the study of last things. But what we're looking at is the return of Christ. In church, we talk a lot about the Lord Jesus Christ. We talk about his deity. We talk about his virgin birth, and we teach on his virgin birth. And we talk about his miracles, and then we talk about the, something we'll be, we'll be there in probably about a month where we're going to go very detailed into the events of Calvary as we work our way through the Gospel of Matthew. But we're, we, we look at the cross. We look at his resurrection from the dead. We look at the, uh, the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. But this is a subject that a lot of times we don't pay a lot of attention to. And that subject is the return of Christ. We're looking at this morning the theology, the understanding of what God's word says concerning Jesus Christ's return. One day, I hope in our lifetime, you and I will be going down I-26 or we'll be making our way through downtown Lexington or, or in Ballantyne or Irma or wherever you live and that trumpet's going to sound. That trumpet's going to sound and boom, we're out of here. We're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory. But my point is, a lot of times in church, we don't study this subject a lot. So what I'm going to do is we're going to spend this Sunday and next Sunday on Matthew chapter 24. This is actually Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25 is what is known as the Olivet Discourse. 
So Jesus is opposite of Jerusalem on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. He sits his disciples down, and he's going to teach them and explain to them what's going to happen in the last days. What will be the signs of Christ's return? So y'all ready to dive into it? Let's do it. Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple building to him, buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Now, uh, here in verses 1 and 2, Jesus is making a huge prediction. This is a mind-blowing prediction, especially in the context of the first century. He is predicting that the icon of Judaism, which is Herod's temple, this great and magnificent temple there on the Temple Mount, there in Jerusalem, what people came from thousands of miles away just to see, is going to be destroyed. Josephus described Herod's temple as a celestial wonder with all of its splendor. Inside the temple, it contained the table of showbread, the altar of incense. It contained the, the lampstand, the holy of holies where God manifested his glory, where the high priest went in once a year on what we call Yom Kippur and made the sacrifice for Israel's sin. This temple was a holy place. It was a very holy place in the eyes of Israel, but it was also a very beautiful place magnificent for the eyes to behold. Josephus says this, and I'm quoting from Josephus. He said this, when sojourners would approach Jerusalem from a distance as they were going there to celebrate feast, he says this, quote, at the first rising of the sun reflected back a fiery splendor and made those who forced themselves to look upon it to turn their eyes away just as they would have done at the sun's own rays. So this magnificent temple there in Jerusalem that was beautiful on the inside, that was just, it, it all struck people when they saw it from a distance. Jesus is telling his disciples, this building is coming down. And I could just imagine what the disciples were thinking. What? What are you talking about? We spent all these years building this temple, our nation. That's where the sacrifice was made. That's what Judaism and the Old Testament was surrounded was what took place there in Jerusalem, there in the temple. And Jesus is saying that this building is going to come down. Let's continue. Verse 3. Verse 3 says, As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, we know from history, 40 years after this event, that the Romans will come in and they will level Jerusalem. They will wipe out the temple. And then the Jerusalem will go into a period of, of, of um, domination by other countries for almost 2,000 years. But notice he says here, um, when will the sign of your coming, when will be the end of the age? The disciples were in awe of Jesus' prediction. So they not only asked what, about the temple, but they asked the bigger question, which is the question that all of us have in the back of our mind, and that is, when will the end come? So I could just see Jesus there 
he makes his way through the Kidron Valley, goes up the Mount of Olives, and he sits them on the hillside, and he gives them what we call the Olivet Discourse, which is Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25, and he answers the big question. Now, first off, we got to lay a little groundwork. First off, you need to understand, when Jesus spoke these words, they were not meant for the lifetime to, be, to take place in the lifetime of the disciple. Look in your Bibles at verse 15. Everybody look in your Bible at verse 15. I want to show that to you. It says in verse 15, I, I checked out all the translations. They all say this at the very end. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, what does it say? Let the reader understand. Okay? So Jesus' words spoken here in the Olivet Discourse were meant for a future generation who will be living in the last days and who will be able to read this passage and understand what is happening. Okay? Now, this passage can be very hard to teach. There's a lot of debate and there's a lot of talk about this passage. So what I want to do for you now is I want to frame it up, okay? In your minds this morning, we are studying verses 1 through 31 of the Olivet Discourse. We'll pick up at verse 32 next week, okay? Verses 30 and 31 in this passage is Christ's actual return. You'll see that in your text. Verses 4 through 29 are um, 14 events. Okay, so I got a slide I want to show you. These are the, this is the layout of this chapter. Phase one is verses four through eight. Pastor David, why do you call that phase one? Because if you look at verse nine, look at the, the first word of verse nine of your text. It uses the word then. Okay, that word then means after this takes place, then these events will take place. You, you'll see that in, in, your, in your Bible in verse 9. And then we have verses 9 through 15, or 9 through 14. And then if you look at verse 16 of Matthew chapter 24, it starts off with that word then. So then, meaning after the, the events of verses 9 through 14, 9 through 15, there'll be phase 3 which is verses 15 through 29. So I want you to keep this picture in your mind as we go through these texts because he uses the, that word then. And that word then is, is what we call a time marker in the text. It says this happens, then this is going to happen. Okay, so let's look at phase one. Phase one, which is verses four through eight. Verse four says, Jesus answered and said unto them, see to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. So the first sign in the first phase, according to God's word, what Jesus is saying here, is there will be what? There will be false Christ. There will be people, false Christ are people who claim to be Jesus. People that claim to be from God. People that claim to be the Messiah. That will be one of the signs as we get closer and closer to the end of the age. Now, I went out and did a little research this week. I'm going to show you my next slide. Uh, th these, what I'm showing you right here, these are documented claims of messiahship over the past 400 years. You can look them up for yourself. But in the 17th century, there was one guy, Reese Evans. I know nothing about him, but he, was, he claimed to be a messiah. In the 18th century, there were two people. You see their names. In the 19th century, there were eight 
people that were documented to claim to be Jesus. In the 20 and 21st century, there have been 35 people claiming to be Jesus, claiming to be from God. I find that quite interesting to see how rapidly and how much is picking up. Many times when it comes to eschatology, we just think about what's happening in our life. But when you look at biblical eschatology and you look at last days, you can't just look at your life. You got to look at the past 2,000 years, the past 500 years, the past 100 years, and look at it. I mean, let's look at the next slide. Who can forget the guy on the top left? Who was alive during when that happened? David Koresh and the Branch Davidian cult. They were a cult. He was evil. Or Jim Jones to his right, who led the mass murder suicide at Jonestown. And by the way, all these people are evil, and all these people are satanic. Their, their fruit of their ministry is evil, wicked, immorality, false religion, and it's just, it's like, duh, that they're false teachers. Bottom left-hand side, meet Sergei Torop. He is currently today a cult leader in Russia. He was a traffic cop in Russia, but now he thinks he's Jesus. Kind of got a similar like little look, whatever, but, but he's a false teacher. But he's, he's, he's active today in Russia. The bottom right-hand side, this is A.J. Miller and Mary Luck. They are active today. They are active and they are, they are based in Australia. A.J claims to be the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. And his, I, I think it's his wife, wife or girlfriend or something. Her name is Mary, and she claims to be uh, the reincarnation of Mary Magdalene. Okay? But there are people like this in the world today. There, there are people in the world today. And friends, I'm going to make this simple for you. Our Jesus, the true and living God of the Bible, he is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven okay he will not be here on this earth until the rapture of the church and even then he's the bible says in thessalonians he's just going to appear in the clouds and take his church home to be with him at the second coming at the end of the great tribulation he's going to come at the battle of armageddon he's going to wipe out the forces of darkness so jesus the true and living god the lord jesus christ the son of god he's will always be at the right hand of the Father, and one day you and I will be with him. So when you see people in this world, they claim to be Jesus or claim to be Christ's representative, just blow it off. Blow it off and ignore it. They're satanic and they're evil. Let's continue. I think we're, we're at verse 6. Then it says, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. You know, as we get closer and closer to the return of Christ, no man knows the day, no man knows the hour. Pastor David is not predicting. You can't predict. Matter of fact, if somebody predicts, that automatically means that that will not be the day because Jesus said no man knows the day or the hour. Okay, but he gives us the signs of the time. He gives us the signs of the age. And here is conflicts. I mean, can you hear, remember World War I, World War II, the Korean War? Vietnam War, Iraq War, Afghanistan. It just goes on and it's just, it's going to continue to go on and on and on. Why? Because the heart of man is deceitful and wicked. We live in a fallen world marred by sin. And men, countries, people are naturally angry and they will fight and they will war until 
one of the titles I love of his name, Jesus comes. And the Prince of Peace. He will bring peace to this world. But until then, man will fight. But notice there in verse 6, I love what he says there. Jesus says, see that you are not frightened. I love that phrase. Because, man, when people hear wars, they get scared. Ah, what's going on in our world? But Jesus tells his disciples and he tells his followers, don't be frightened. He told his disciples in the upper room on the evening, which is going to uh, happen in a couple days from this, when he's saying this, he said, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place. So we're not scared by end time events. We're not frightened. We're not running for a cave. We're not going to become a monk in a monastery and go hide and, and stockpile our stuff and go live in a cave in the mountains. No, we're going to live life. We're going to live life as we're living now. We're being hard, being productive, living everyday life. But we're going, we've got to be aware of the signs of the times, and it will progress. Verse 7, it says, For nations will rise against nation and kingdoms against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. So here we have famines. According to the World Health Organization, I went on their website this week and looked at it. You can see it for yourself. Over eight, 828 million people today are affected by a lack of food and starvation. So famine is a real thing, and it seems like it's getting worse. Some of your translations, not all of them, but some translations will say pestilences. So pestilences, there'll be widespread disease and plagues. You know, just a couple years ago, before, our, before COVID hit, you know, it seemed like our world, they had, they, had the, um, they had all the disease and the spreading of viruses completely under control. What did we learn from COVID? We learned it could, a disease, uh, pestilences, things like that can spread really quick. So it's like COVID was like a, a shot across the bow to the world that pestilences and disease and stuff like that can still spread today. We are not immune to um, diseases and plagues. Then he says there uh, in verse 7, the, the final word, earthquakes. Natural disasters will increase. Crazy things with the weather and nature. By the way, what is going on with our planet? What is going on with our planet today? What, what is going on with the weather? What is a biblical worldview of what we see taking place in our planet with uh, the wildfires and the volcanoes and, and the tides and the winds and the crazy weather. What is a biblical world view when we see those things in the news? What comes to your mind? This is what should come to our mind. The Bible teaches that creation is frustrated. The Bible teaches that creation is crying out. I'm going to give you a verse in a minute. The Bible is, teaches that creation is groaning in pain. Uh, make note of this. Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 22. I'll read it to you. It says this. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, 
but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. I believe, it's my position, planet Earth is crying out to God, saying, come Lord Jesus, establish your kingdom, rid the world of sin and darkness and decay, set up your kingdom. It's like creation's crying out, Lord, come in all your glory and establish your kingdom. I believe that is a biblical theology that every believer should have. Psalms chapter 24, verse verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, and all those who contain it. He owns the earth. He owns the oceans. He owns every single continent, every speck of ice on the north and south pole. God owns it all. There is no reason to fear. There is no reason to fret over the things we see in this world because God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ owns it all. It's all his, and it all moves at his sovereign command. But even creation is crying out for his return. Let's continue. Verse 8. But all things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. So he says there in verse 8, these are the beginning of the birth pangs. This ends phase one. I find it interesting he uses the word birth pangs. Because, you know, you think about when, when a mom goes into labor and she first goes to the hospital. You know, she's kind of panting. She's kind of breathing. And the, the, the birth pains are coming on. And they go away. And, but as she gets closer and closer to the, to the birth of her child, the pains increase more and more and more until eventually she has the baby. So it will be with, with the return of Christ. Things will get gradually more and more and more until finally Christ splits that eastern sky. These are merely the beginning of the birth pains. Now look at verse 9. Verse 9. There's that word. Remember the time marker? As you're studying Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 31, Jesus uses that word then. That means after these events, then comes phase two of the slide I showed you earlier. Then, after those birth pangs, verse 9 says, they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. The fifth thing we see here in the text this morning is as we get closer to the return of Christ, there will be an increase in the persecution of believers, okay? Christians will be hated. Christians will be delivered over to tribulation. That tribulation could be suffering. That tribulation could be imprisonment. That that tribulation could be killing. All for their beliefs and what they stand for. As we get closer and closer to the return of the Christ, to, to Christ's return, it will become more and more difficult to be a Christian. It will be more and more difficult to be a true follower of Christ because they will first intense tribulation and will kill people and, and, you'll be, and people will be hated. And notice that the very last four words of verse nine. Why? Not because of something you're doing, but because of Jesus's name. That's why the world will hate 
because of my name. Jesus says it there in verse 9. Look at yourself. Verse 10 says, At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. He says two things here. First off, he says in verse 10, many will fall away. That word uh, fall away, another word for that is apostasy. There, there, will be, there will be a major apostasy in the world. Many people who profess to be a Christian uh, and profess Christianity, they will abandon Christianity. They will choose to follow the lies of the world over the truth of God's word. I, I read a study this week. Uh, I forgot the name of the website. A friend of mine sent it to me. But they said that uh, uh, almost 40 or, 40 or 50 percent of believers uh, do not believe that Jesus lived a sinless life. They believe that he sinned in this lifetime. You know, family, that's false teaching. That's, that's apostasy. That's falling away. You know, to, to, you know, I would say they're, they're not a Christian because to believe in Christ, you have to believe in the Jesus of the Bible and the Jesus of the Bible lived a sinless, perfect life in order to be the perfect sacrifice for our sin, okay? So Jesus was the pure and perfect, holy lamb of God. It's the Lord Jesus Christ of the New Testament that we believe in and we trust in. And we hold firmly to those truths. We hold, we hold firmly to the authority of the Bible. We hold firmly uh, in love to Jesus' uh, virgin birth, to his deity as God. We hold firmly to his death. We hold firmly to his resurrection. And we hold firmly to his return. We don't bend on those issues. But as we get closer, people will fall away. Verse 10 says, and they will betray one another and hate one another. So, and it's, uh, I, th I think he's talking about the whole world here. He's talking about the whole world situation. There'll be a betrayal of one another and there'll be a hatred of one another. So there'll, there'll be this betrayal and there'll be this hatred in the world. There will be animosity, anger. There will be division over everything, over politics, over religion, over what's for dinner. People will argue and fight over everything. And if you dare live out, dare try to live out a godly Christian life, you will be called narrow-minded and you will be hated. Verse 11 says, many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Now notice at the end of verse, I, think, I thought it was important when you look at it, verse 11, look at the word it begins with, it ends with many and many. So there will be many. <laughs> uh, there'll be many uh, false teachers. There'll be an increase. Number eight, there'll be an increase in false teachers. There will be a religion in the world, but it will be a religion led by false prophets, false teachers, according to the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 24, verse 11. There'll be no repentance, no new birth, no surrender to Jesus as Lord. It will be a man-centered religion. It will be unbiblical, and it will, meant, it will be meant to appease the masses. Because everybody's religious. Whether you're atheist or born-again Christian or, or any other religion, everybody is, has, a, has a religious part of them, and everyone will be religious, but it won't be the religion of true biblical Christianity. Verse 12. Verse 12 he says, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. We see two things there in verse 12. Uh, lawlessness will be increased. 
uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 says, Sin is transgression of the law. It is lawlessness, as others, some translations say. But according to verse 12, sin will be accepted, and it will become the norm in life. And to live a righteous, holy, dedicated life, you will be the alien. Verse 12 also says, most people's love will grow cold. So we see this in the world. There'll be a decrease in love. There will be no love. People will be self-centered. And may I say this right now, from now to the day of eternity, let that never be said of you and me. Let us be filled with Christ's love for all people, okay? Not just for our brothers and sisters in Christ, but also for unbelievers, for all people of all walks of life, we are called to love this world, okay? Hate and hatred and anger and animosity has no place in the life of the believer. It hinders our evangelism. It hinders our outreach. No matter how much someone agrees with us or, so, or, or how much someone disagrees with us, we need to be the most loving and kind people on planet earth and not let this be not let ever let this be said of us when you receive christ as your lord and savior god takes his 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 uh jar of love by the holy spirit and he just fills your heart up okay and that love stays in our heart let that love work its way out in to love to our neighbors to our co-workers to our friends to our enemies to all people you got it <laughs> okay so we love but look at verse 13 but the one who endures to the end will be saved that phrase there it just it just has a connotation of this is going to be challenging but the one but because it uses that word one but the one like like there's going to be few but the one who endures to the end will be saved so there will be faithful believers there will be faithful believers from now until Christ turns, till Christ returns, but they will have to endure difficult times. It will be very difficult. And the only way, friends and family, you and I will make it to the end is to stay in the love of God, to walk in his love, to walk in his grace, to walk in his truth, and to fill our hearts with the word of God. That's how we guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus by filling it with the word of God and being yielded to his love and to his truth. Verse 14, he says, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. So the 11th sign, the 11th thing that we'll see as we get closer and closer to the, to the return of Christ is uh, it's the bright spot. And that is the body of Christ will stand firm the body of christ will stand firm missions will continue and the gospel will go into all the world don't let your heart be troubled god will get his word to every island every nation every continent okay he's sovereign he rules he reigns and he will get his word out all people will have an opportunity to hear and believe and trust in christ but it's going to be a war. It's going to be a fight. It's going to be, it's going to be darkness versus light. John chapter 1 verse 5 says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Let me repeat that because it's very important. The light shines in the darkness, 
and the darkness can never extinguish it. Have you ever seen darkness extinguish light? It won't, it won't happen. It can't happen. It will not. It's a scientific impossibility. It is the same with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and true Christianity. It will go out to all the world and the light will overcome the darkness and the message getting out. Let's get into verse 15. Now verse 15, we're going we're gonna to bring in some Daniel. We're going to... Um, we're going to, uh, we're still at the end of phase two, but this is where um, most theologians, and I agree with them, this is where we, see, we start to see a transition from, uh, show, bring up the slide. This is where you start to see the transition from phase two to phase three. Now, how, Pastor David, how do you separate phase two and phase three? Look at the beginning of verse 16. Jesus uses that word then. Okay, but he, but he sets the stage for verse 16, starting here at verse 15. So let's take a look at verse 15 and, and park here for a minute. Verse 15 says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through the Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So verse 15 is clearly, okay, you don't have to have uh, a lot of Bible knowledge to read this passage and understand it. Verse 15 is definitely a defining moment. This is like an, a, an event that's going to take place in the future that Jesus here is telling his disciples that this moment is going to happen, okay? So what is this abomination of desolation? Okay, I've spent several weeks studying this. You can go back on our YouTube channel and look it up, but I'm going to briefly summarize it. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, Daniel prophesied that there will be 70 weeks. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 27. Daniel prophesied there will be 70 weeks from the command to rebuild Jerusalem until Jesus' final kingdom. And in that text, after the 69 weeks, the Messiah would present himself as Messiah to Jerusalem and he will be put to death. This was fulfilled with pinpoint accuracy when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and was crucified five days later. It's, it says it, the, the word says it. Okay, after 69 weeks, this will happen. So according to Daniel's 70-week prophecy, there is still one week of Daniel's 70-week prophecy that's unfulfilled. Now, if you go study weeks in the Old Testament and in the book of Revelation, you will discover that a week is a seven-year period, okay? So in Daniel's prophecy, that leaves one week, a seven-year period of not being fulfilled. And most scholars will present, and I agree with them, that verses 15 through 18 is the final phase and is called the Great Tribulation. Let's look at the slide again. So phase one are events, things that are going to happen. Phase one, you could argue that those things have been happening for 2,000 years, okay? You could, you could look back over the past 2,000 years and you could see earthquakes, pestilence, famines, wars, and, and deception. That's been happening for 2,000 years. Phase two is definitely distinct. You see it, it's more specific. The characteristics of the last times will be, uh, will be worse. But then when you get to phase three, verses 15 through 29, you have there the appearance of the Antichrist. You have the Great Tribulation. 
And Jesus uses that word here. I'm going to show it to you in a minute. In verses 15 through 29. And then you have the rise of uh, more uh, false Christ. Okay? Now, what has Pastor David not talked about that mostly you probably, some of you guys are thinking about right now? How about the rapture? Where is the, where is the rapture of the church in all this? Let's look at the text first. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 17. Paul writes this to the church at Thessalonica, and he says this, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we be with the Lord forever. The rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ are two separate events. The rapture, Jesus is coming to take his bride to heaven. That's very clear in scripture. Whereas the second coming, he's coming down to establish his eternal kingdom and wipe out the Antichrist. So where is the rapture? I'm going to show you the three different positions of the rapture. The next slide. Okay. So there's the three events. There are three main views of where the tribulation takes place. And after I explain all three of them, then I'll tell you where Calvary Chapel stands. If you look at the three lines during phase three, there's the pre-tribulation rapture, which means pre-trib, means that the rapture of the church will take place before the great tribulation. The rapture of the church is the event that, that, in, that kicks off the great tribulation with the removal of the church. But there's also a position called the mid-trib rapture. And that's, you know, the, the, rap, the great tribulation is a seven-year period, and there are people that hold to a mid-trib view that halfway through the great tribulation, Jesus will rapture their church. And then finally, there's the post-trib rapture. And that people that hold to that position believe that Christians are going to go all the way through the great tribulation, and then they will be raptured at the end. Now, where does Calvary Chapel stand? Calvary Chapel is in the first category. We believe in a pre-tribulation rapture because the book of Thessalonians says, Jesus who saves us from the wrath to come. Okay? And also, uh, this, this period, phase three, called the Great Tribulation, we spent a whole entire year here studying the Great Tribulation. I think it was 2018. We went verse by verse through the book of Revelation. That's what the book of Revelation is. The book of Revelation after the church age is God pouring out his wrath, turning his attention back to the nation of Israel, okay? But we believe, oh, oh, oh my, my point. When you study the book of Revelation from Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, all the way to Revelation chapter 21, you will not see the word Christian at all in that text. You will not see the word church at all in that text. But what you will find in that text between Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 21 is you'll find references to Israel, to the 144,000, y'all remember that? And to the Jewish nation. So we believe that Christ is going to rapture his church prior to the great tribulation. But let me just say this, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, we're all in a family together. He's coming again. He's coming again. And we'll get to heaven one day and 
you know, uh, maybe you're mid-trib and I'm pre-trib. You know, one of us is going to say, ha, I told you I was right. But it doesn't matter. We'll all be in heaven. But we hold to the pre-trib. We believe that Christ will come. Now, another important question I thought about as I was studying this this week is in this passage, is why does Jesus not mention the rapture and the Olivet Discourse? That is a very fair, and that is a very good question for our serious thinkers of theology. And I want to give you two reasons why Jesus does not mention the rapture in the Olivet Discourse. Number one, who's he speaking to? He's speaking to the Jews. He's speaking to the disciples. He's speaking to Israel. This was about, this was in response to the temple coming down. He's speaking prophetically. The Gospel of Matthew alone, this Gospel was written to a Jewish audience. And, you know, you can see the hundreds of Old Testament references in the Gospel of Matthew that reference the Old Testament. The, the Gospel of Matthew is just coded and just covered in, in Jewish language, in Jewish theology. So the first reason he doesn't mention the rapture in the Olivet Discourse, I would say, is because he's speaking to Jews. And the second reason I would present to you in the spirit of grace is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 55. The apostle Paul calls the rapture of the church a mystery, a mystery. And, it's, and when he uses that word mystery in the New Testament, he's not talking about, ooh, what's gonna happen? You're not gonna be able to know it. When the word mystery is used in the New Testament, it talks about something that is just now being revealed something that's being unveiled that previously wasn't. So when Jesus is on the Mount of Olives speaking there to the um, disciples about Jerusalem, we hadn't got to the church age part. The church hadn't been born. The church wasn't born until Pentecost, you know, in the book of Acts and then Romans, Corinthians, Philippians, and the New Testament church wasn't fully developed. So that's why I believe that, uh, that why he doesn't mention it. But it's important to understand that when you study this passage, and then you look at the passages on Thessalonians on the rapture of the church, and then you study the uh, the Great Tribulation, the the um, the, the, um, the Great Tribulation, the Book of Revelation. You see that this event is clearly taking place. And what we have to do in, in biblical theology, we have to overlay them to see where they stand. But again, uh, eschatology should be never should never be anything that divides us. It should create a lot of good conversation. And a lot of, well, what about this? And what about this trumpet? And what about this trumpet? It's fun to talk about it. I love to talk about it. But at the end of the day, we fist pump with our pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib brothers, and we say, he's coming again. Amen? All right, so let's continue. Verse 16. Verse 16. Um, here's that final, that final then. Jesus uses it at the beginning of verse 16. Then, after these events, then this is gonna happen. We believe the abomination of desolation, the rise of the Antichrist, the rapture of the church. This is talking about the great tribulation. Verse 16 says, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Pray that your flight will not be in the winter or in a Sabbath. So there will be uh, life, there, there, there will be families during the great tribulation, 
But it will be a difficult life. It, it will be a difficult life. They will be fleeing persecution. They will be fleeing the Antichrist. They, they, they will be fleeing from this global world order. And if you don't believe me, go look at the book of Revelation. You'd be running too. Verse 21. Look at verse 21. It's right there. For then there will be a, what's the word say? Great tribulation. It says it right there. Then there will be a great tribulation. These events will be the great tribulation. Such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. So this is, this is not going to be um, some skirmish in the Middle East. It will be a worldwide, according to Scripture, all the Scriptures that talk about it, it will be worldwide, it will be a seven-year period, and it's known as, what did Jesus call it here? The Great Tribulation. Jeremiah calls it Jacob's Trouble. Daniel calls it the 70th week, or that last seven-year period. And God has dedicated an entire New Testament book to verse 21. Then there will be a great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world. Revelation chapter 1 through Revelation. The whole book of Revelation is a commentary on verse 21. God gave us that book to describe this great tribulation. Let's continue. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. Life will be difficult during the great tribulation. You will take the mark of the beast and live or you will refuse the mark and you will be put to death, period. People laugh, people mock at this teaching. People laugh and mock at what I'm talking about right now. We'll see if they're laughing when it happens. Verse 26. So if they say to you, behold, this is during the Great Tribulation, verse 26. So they say to you, behold, he is in the wilderness. Do not go out. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe him. You know, if you're alive during the Great Tribulation, if you don't make it, if someone doesn't make it in the rapture, you know, my best advice is Jesus will not be here on this earth. He will be up in heaven. He will be at the right hand of the Father, the marriage supper of the Lamb. It, 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 he'll, be, it'll be glorious. He'll be in heaven. If anybody appears on earth claiming to be the Messiah, you say, uh-uh, that's not what the Word says. He will be above, not here on earth. Verse 27, for just as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. It will be that fast. Boom! You ever, I've been up in the mountains before and you hear lightning. Sometimes you're up in the mountains, you're closer to the sky, you're closer to the clouds, and you hear lightning strike and it scares you. You're like, yeah, what was that? that will be, so will it be with the coming of Christ. It will be that quick. It will be that fast. And then, so Jesus is on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, opposite of Jerusalem he's talking to his disciples and then I could just see their faces their eyeballs were probably this big around popping out their jaws were dropped they were like wow all this is going to happen some of them probably believed some of them probably didn't believe they wouldn't fully believe until after his resurrection but they're just blown away 
at the predictions. And then Jesus says, after the enduring, after the tribulation, after the hard times of those days, he gets to verse 29. And we call this his beautiful, glorious return. You'll no longer live by faith. You'll see Jesus face to face, the one who paid the price for your sins on the cross. Verse 29. And there it is again, but immediately after the what? Tribulation. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give us light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn for they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a, with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. The promise that began in eternity past that was stamped and paid it full at Calvary with the deal was sealed with the resurrection it was opened to your life when you opened your heart to Christ it will all come to a culmination okay there's a huge benefit to your relationship with Christ you will see him face to face at the eight, at the end of the great tribulation you got to go study revelation chapter 19 through 21 Christ will return he will establish his rule and reign over Jerusalem over Israel and over all the world and friends it's going to be beautiful it's going to be beautiful and you don't want to miss it this is the word from heaven this is what's going to be so glorious to the everything that every missionary has ever done ever done for serving the Lord all the people that we witnessed to and brought to Christ the reward of, of your faith in Christ reading the word, spending, being close to Christ, it will come to fulfillment when you see him face to face. Now, knowing that Jesus will return, he will come again. He will come again. What should that cause you and I to do today? What is the application living in 2023 knowing about the return of Christ? Here's what it should do. It should cause us to live holy lives. It should cause us to live holy, obedient lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. And secondly, knowing that Christ will return, it should fuel our evangelism. We have a message, a message of eternal life, a message of forgiveness of sin, a message of a hope and a future through the Lord Jesus Christ. And knowing that one day he will return, it should fuel that passion. There's one thing you will not be able to do in heaven that one thing you will not be able to do in heaven, as far as I can think, I'm sure somebody after service is going to remind me of something else, but the one thing that I thought of, the one thing that you won't be able to do in heaven, you won't, you won't need to, you won't, be able to, you won't need to evangelize. Let's, on this side of eternity, this side of this life, let's spend every day, let's spend our lives, you know, living our life, uh, raising families, working hard, doing life together, but let's also make sure that we are 
evangelizing. We are evangelizing. Amen? There's a lot of voices. There's a lot of voices in the world today. I say there's three voices in the world today. Which voice will you listen to? The voice of the atheist says there is no God and you're just cosmic dust. He is very foolish. He is a fool. Then there's the voice of the ungodly. He says, live like you want to, identify whoever you want to be, whatever you want to be, do what makes you happy. If you want to live in sin, it's your body, your life, your choices. That's the voice of a fool. And then there's the voice that we all need to listen to, and that is the voice of God. And this is what the voice of God says to each of us today, and he says to this world, he says, I love you. I love you, and I died on the cross for you. That's the voice of God. The voice of God says, if you will open your heart, receive me as your Lord and Savior, I will give you a new heart. And not only will I give you a new heart to live this life with, but you will rule and reign with me for all eternity. Amen? So today, if you're not saved, today, let today be the day of salvation. Let today be the day that you surrender your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, we're not meant to fear these events. We're not meant to fear the book of Revelation. We're just meant to understand that it will take place. But in his love, in his presence, is perfect peace and perfect love. Surrender your life to Jesus today. Begin the great adventure. Serve him. And this is going to be exciting. It's, there are exciting days ahead. There's exciting, there's exciting and awesome days ahead for the body of Christ. As we reach out, as we evangelize, as we help the poor, as we feed the schools, as we do ministry in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's going to be exciting days. But we know we live with an eternal perspective, knowing what's, way, what's ahead in the future. We live holy and we reach out to people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this study this morning on the Olivet Discourse, part one. And Father, uh, wow, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot of theology. That was a lot of the word. And some of us need, may need to go home and meditate on this passage more and read it more and let it soak in. But Lord, let the message ring out clear in our hearts now that you will come again. You, you are coming again. There's a day on the calendar in the future. You know that day. You know that hour. You know that moment. And Lord, we thank you for that. And that's our hope. That's our faith. That's the day we look forward to. So Lord, help us to look to you. Help us to look to you now for our daily needs for our life today, for grace, for mercy. Father, orient our hearts. Orient the eyes of our heart towards you this morning. And Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you. Help us to look to you with all of our hearts. For it's in Jesus' mighty name I pray. All God's people said, 
Amen.